0: Welcome to Talk, teaching and learning consultation skills. This is the Talk Talks podcast, helping everyone who sees patients to improve their consultation skills, to get better outcomes. And this approach can even increase your job satisfaction. Avril Danchak. I'm a GP and medical educator in Manchester. This module addresses many aspects of learning consultation skills which might be unfamiliar if you're new to primary care, new to the NHS, or simply new to the whole idea of specific consultation skills development and education. In this podcast and the related one, which is about the voice, we're going to take a really deep dive into issues connected with non-verbal communications. And I'm joined today by Mo, so Mo, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us exactly what we mean by nonverbal communication?
1: Hi Avril, I'm Mohan Kumar, I'm a GP educator and an associate dean working with Health Education England. And uh, thanks for inviting me to contribute to this podcast. We've had many conversations around nonverbal communication throughout our series of consultation skills masterclasses. Non-verbal communication is something which is not taught in depth from my understanding in undergraduate or postgraduate curriculum. And we felt that it's a really important aspect of how a message is communicated, especially in a in a clinical context, because the message we are giving if it's it needs to be understood without any prejudice and it needs to convey a lot more than just the factual information so we realized that nonverbal communication forms a large part of it's not what you say it's how you say it it's i when i first came into nonverbal communication there was a lot about what people traditionally called body language which is about the movement of your hands the eye contact the proximity you have with the person you're communicating with or the kind of social distance you maintain your body posture all these can be interpreted differently you see that some people use their hands quite a lot in communication to accentuate the message they are giving We call this kind of active movement of the body kinesics. For example, I come from South India, where uh, my daughter always jokes that how my head is very stable in Manchester. And as the flight goes past Dubai, it starts to come very loose. And then by the time I land in Chennai, where I'm originally from, my head starts to go in multiple directions. And it's a different coaxial tilt can convey different messages. So the whole aspect of conveying messages, using your body to accentuate the message is called kinesics.
0: Okay, can I just stop you there for a minute before we we go into massive detail? Because it it sounds as though um, nonverbal communication covers a lot more than just sitting down and being vaguely friendly. And I think you've already started to imply that there's a different classification almost of different kinds of nonverbal communication. You've mentioned quite a few already. And I just wondered if you could sort of literally give me a list of what these different aspects are, because I, I've tended to think of it as being about body position and eye contact, but you're saying it's a lot more. So
1: what would, what would be the list of things we'd have to be thinking about? Broadly, we have to classify them as... The whole aspect of body language, what is traditionally called as body language, but not forgetting that the tone pitch frequency of the voice is also part of the nonverbal communication, which is often Mm -hmm. missed out. We call this paralinguistics Mm -hmm. and there's a separate podcast we've done to cover this area, which is actually about the speech itself, not the words conveyed, but the tone frequency, pitch intonation, pausing the whole aspect of that so that's covered in a different podcast mm-hmm. what we'll cover today in this one would be the list of non-verbal communication aspects and as it currently stands it covers kinesics, which is gesture and movement it covers proxemics which is a word i came up with to indicate the proximity to the person in front of you the kind of social distance we have with friends family patients in a meeting, mm-hmm. um, there is the eye movements and the eye expressions, which are called oculistics, um, which directly deals with that. And then there's also the whole aspect of the attitudes to time and punctuality, which is a new arrival to the nonverbal element. It's called chronemics, or it's the word I I thought indicates time, but different cultures have different attitudes to time and punctuality okay. not right or wrong but contextual to how you yeah. arrive to a meeting or how yeah. you arrive to okay. so this is well, this is roughly the list of
0: okay. um, there's also
1: the touch which we haven't talked about called haptics
0: okay uh, which
1: is about how appropriate it is to Touch or comfort somebody, or to touch them, and that can be variable as well. So So, this covers uh, the list.
0: uh, That's a massive amount to consider, and I'm going to suggest we take these one by one. So let's start with thinking about body position and closeness, which we're calling, for the sake of argument, proxemics here. What what do we need to think about when we think about body position and closeness in a clinical context, rather than in a personal and social context?
1: Anybody who's travelled around the world knows that our comfort zone of social distance can vary between cultures and nations. Equally, our comfort zone of proximity we have to people who we are familiar with, uh, like our family members, our our children or members of our family, our friends, is slightly different to when we are in professional contact. So an awareness of what is considered an appropriate social distance is very important in a Clinical contact. In some circumstances, it can be ups- acceptable to breach the distance whether we are comforting somebody or others. But usually, there is an accepted norm of how far you maintain the social distance. Uh, there is a graph if anybody Google social distances, which indicates the kind of appropriate distance considered in Western connotation for a public gathering for a family gathering for when you're with friends or family. I think in the context of consultation skills, we all know that we set up our consultation room in a way where we feel comfortable with the social distance between us and the patient. Um, Occasionally, you find the patients may breach the distance by pulling their chair closer to us. or in some circumstances moving even away from us Mm. and both these things can cause a slight dissonance in the mood or uh, what it means Uh, and there is an accepted range within that but if it gets too uncomfortable uh, then it's worth approaching it or we may move away from the distance as well in some circumstances like when you're examining somebody it's all equally important that when you realize that you're altering the social distance to seek permission from the individual you're altering to. Often you get these complaints or misconceptions when a doctor breaches a social distance without seeking permission can be viewed as an assault or may even frighten uh, a patient, especially when it's an intimate examination. So these are very important, may sound um, like an interesting, example of a subject, but it becomes very important in a doctor-patient or clinician-patient
0: contact. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing, isn't it, is that we, we gradually come to understand the social distance, but in clinical work we, we're in this very unique position where we actually have to explicitly breach the normal um, social relationships in that way, sometimes only a few minutes after we've met someone. I mean, it's very unusual in normal life to be doing a rectal examination five minutes after you've met somebody. But in a clinical context, um, you might be doing an intimate nursing procedure, or you might be examining somebody quite quickly. And that that is where we need to be aware that the social distancing is almost being breached and to to introduce that, to explain it formally, uh, to be kind and empathic, and to remember that what's routine for a clinician can be really frightening or unusual for patients and that patients who've been traumatized in the past, for example, might find even a quite simple touch quite threatening and frightening. So it's often only necessary to say, you know, your arm's hurting. I, I need to examine it. Would you feel comfortable rolling up your sleeve or would it be all right for you to take your jumper off or something without kind of pouncing on someone? So that's a way of negotiating those distances, isn't it? I suppose the next thing which brings to mind for me here is the whole idea about nonverbal communications attached to touching uh, and when we touch patients. So I I wonder what kind of things we need to be mindful of in in that context.
1: Uh, Even more than the kind of social distance, touching um, can be different in different cultures. There's a whole hierarchy of touching from a formal, semi-formal, informal, to something a lot more intimate between individuals. So it's vitally important when it comes to clinical contact that you seek permission when it comes to something to do with examination, as we described before. While we are breaching the social distance, we may also have to touch the patient to examine them in different parts. It can be semi intimate or it may be an intimate area where we are touching and all this needs to be clarified sought permission and usually there will be a chaperone associated with that well there are other aspects of touch where a clinician or a, a practitioner may feel that the urge to comfort an individual by touching their arm or touching their shoulder even this can be in a large number of encounters it may not it may be just part of the message we are giving but as you conveyed in a, in a small proportion it may be considered a breach of social space so it needs to be handled with sensitivity and some understanding of how they are when a person is in depths of grief they're crying offering a, a tissue uttering empathetic sounds is part of conveying empathy but occasionally the clinician may reach across And and pat their hand or touch them. Usually, it's better to weigh up the situation or avoid it if you can. But if the situation calls for it, be aware of the potential to be misunderstood as well.
0: I think that's an that's a very interesting thing that you've just said because I heard a psychotherapist say um, many years ago that if people are actively emoting, so they're crying or or angry or upset in some way, that you should avoid touching them then, actually, because it's a way of almost saying, stop that, Um, you know, shut up, Uh, and that it can be perceived as quite, um, not only intrusive, as you've mentioned yourself, but also kind of a rejecting almost kind of thing, which is not what we want to have. Um, And she recommended just being very, calm when people are crying or upset and and being with them but without touching them and maybe what i would say is take your time because i always find if you say to people take your time and they feel they've got time they generally take a deep breath and start telling you what's going on or you can maybe nudge the tissues in their general direction without sort of going too far with it so i I think it's interesting that sometimes people think um, that to show comfort you have to touch people, whereas actually you can show that with your demeanour and, and your acceptance of their emotion in, in a in a non-verbal way, but without touching. I can easily see how a misunderstanding of touch could happen, uh, and you've talked about that, but I, I thought we should consider gestures now, because gestures also vary a lot between individuals. I tend to wave my hands around a lot, uh, but other people don't. Um, So are there some ways in which we can think about gesture in quite a formal way, Mo?
1: Interestingly, when they looked at doctor patient or clinician patient, practitioner patient communication, when they videoed how people communicate, as you described, some have a very static demeanour where they are not users of a lot of gestures and some do use their hands, their face, their body movements substantially. We can see that with people we know, uh, members of our family or friends, if you start to observe people's gesture, you realise how there are highly kinetic people and some people who are not that kinetic. So it, it begs to think about whether is there a appropriate amount of gestures the research into nonverbal skills in other aspects of communication shows that there is an optimum amount of gesturing is important to convey the message if a person remains incredibly static um, it can be quite unnerving to the person who's listening to the message equally if they are too violently active it can also intrude <laughs> with and this happens when, when we travel. There are some cultures with a highly kinetic culture. So I, I, I remember going to Italy and saying, well, they are even more active than I am. And I felt quite comfortable in that surrounding. Uh, equally, when I, when I met some other cultures where they are very static, you start to feel slightly anxious that am I not getting the message across? It happens in interviews as well, where if the interviewer is very frozen and very monotonous, It's been shown to increase the anxiety levels of the interviewee um, and they start to make mistakes more. So there's some amount of gesturing and tone which alters, which conveys comfort in communication. And since we want in consultation skills, we want our uh, patient to be as comfortable and as relaxed so they can give us as much information. It's important to have an optimum amount of gestures It's also interesting that evidence shows that when a doctor is conveying or a clinician is conveying a message, a complex message about their findings or a diagnosis or a management option, a certain amount of gestures help to ease the message um, can give a lot of comfort, um, can also indicate or add to the verbal message being given we all use uh, what we call emblems and illustrators so when we say something is tiny uh, we may use our hands to convey the tininess when we say something is too far off i often when i'm describing when when a patient is anxious about the cervical smears i describe the the difference between a borderline and an inadequate smear to cam 1 2 and 3 and my hand gets increasingly further and further away to convey how far we are from the dangerous end of the spectrum. I think this section of uh, nonverbal, especially Emblems Illustrators, will really benefit from a a short video, which we will be providing alongside the podcast, so people can actually see what we are talking about. It's difficult to describe, but simply put, gestures include what we call Emblems Illustrators, regulators and adapter gestures equally static positions whether we are leaning too much forward leaning too much backward whether we are sitting very still can also add or hinder some of the messages we are trying to give
0: i think that's really interesting and i think the the video we're going to make to illustrate some of these gestures will be interesting to many people And I think we we need to start with that thing you were just talking about there about body position Um, and because even quite basic things are sometimes not done well, aren't they? I've had a consultation myself with the nurse who sat with her back to me, literally, And it's hard to convey the impact that has on the communication if somebody literally isn't looking at you. And even just the arrangement around the side of the desk or which side of the desk people sit on, uh, these are kind of whole body gestures aren't there but i I think those other things you're talking about very specific gestures to convey meaning uh, which we will show in a video are also really useful ways to support what you're saying to people and and that's a really good thing i'd like to move on now to think about the eyes because eyes give a lot of uh, clues about what somebody's communicating to us Uh, can you talk about eye contact and other things that that give us clues about people's Thoughts and feelings?
1: I know in a lot of literature they say the eyes are the window to the soul. It's a lot, the eyes can convey a lot of clues and cues about what someone is communicating to us. It could be the gaze, how they are looking at us, whether their eyes are lowered, whether they are viewing us directly, whether they are looking around. It could be the movements of the eyes, the pace of blinking which can convey uh, different meanings um the pupillary dilation which if you get close enough you can see when people are excited or upset or anxious it can vary it can give too too much detail but without making it too complicated i think it's useful to talk about as you just described just maintaining eye contact not averting your gaze when somebody is talking not looking at the screen or others is the basic mm. part of oculistics or eye contact mm. then as we mentioned in the other podcast the ability to recognize what eye contact means whether somebody is anxious whether somebody is upset they're mm. happy they're depressed is a useful cue for the clinician to understand mm-hmm. uh, from their patients. So, observing their face will help you to understand what message they are trying to give. Even if the words don't say that, eyes can say a lot more than the words the patients are giving us.
0: That's very interesting. And I think watching people's eyes, you can often get a sense of uh, if their eyes are moving around a lot perhaps that they're anxious or they're thinking about things or they've got concerns about things you can often see people beginning to get tears in their eyes which they will often try and suppress in a a consultation but it can be a clue to say this has affected you whatever it is without saying it's made you sad or angry or whatever because tears can mean different things but you can say this has affected you a lot I can see that tell me a bit more and then people can convey the emotion that you've picked up so the eyes can be tremendously useful in that in that way Um, and perhaps rather more than we think about just with uh, eye contact it can go quite a lot beyond that i'm just thinking now about how clinicians can learn to improve their non-verbal communications Is it just a matter of being aware or are there specific things that we can do to get better at this? And I'm wondering if you've got any ideas about teaching and learning this.
1: We talked about listening in the Paralinguistic podcast where you close your eyes and you listen to the tone, the pitch and the frequency. In this section of non verbal communication, it's the opposite where you turn the sound off and you watch So in a recorded consultation, I found that when the trainee and I turned the volume off completely and observed just what the patient is doing, you suddenly realize there are so many nonverbal messages being given in terms of hand movements, eye contact, head tilt, the body posture, and equally observing themselves without the sound on where you're focusing on and being more self-aware often it can be quite unnerving this is why people say i hate watching myself on video because it suddenly makes you realize on all the different nonverbal elements your body does when you're talking i remember once after years of doing presentations there was a training program which offered to improve your presentation skills by videoing when you speak uh, to a PowerPoint or when you're doing a presentation for five minutes and then they literally broke it apart and showed how I moved my hand, my head, my eye contact, and how in some sections it actually accentuated and helped the message as conveying and in some sections it was hindering the message mm-hmm. convey. So it's not about giving everybody, a right robotic gesture to do in a consultation it's about being aware of where your nonverbal communication aids the message and in which aspects it can hinder the message or may confuse the receiver of the message mm. and this can vary to individual to individual so it's not there is no fixed construct because we you don't want everybody to look and behave and act the same that can be equally unnerving for patients Mm -hmm. they'll think we've been taken over by the stratford
0: doctors (laughs) Um,
1: we've been replaced by ai uh, as part of the nhs reform they might think that so we need to maintain our individuality and personality but only realize that where that extra non-verbal gesture can aid the message we are giving and on circumstances where it's hindering to do less of it. So there's a range within which there's a comfort zone. So okay. it, working with, the sorry to, um, mm. working with individuals or a group, turning the sound off, observing the video, but having some construct. So as I mentioned in the other podcast, we've done a, a, a setup called a non-verbal communication assessments tool, which basically is just a breakdown of Ocular 6 kinetics and how within a consultation your social distance eye contact body movement is observed and described Mm -hmm. and then that description allows the person being observed to make a judgment call with the support of the facilitator that this is aiding or hindering Mm -hmm. with the communication Equally important is observing the patient doing that.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's so important. And we come back to this theme over and over again when we're thinking about how to improve things. Is it's really important to be able to describe and accurately what's actually happening. Not to say uh, you, know, you didn't have very good eye contact, but to say at this point you had eye contact then you started looking at the floor or then you started looking at the computer screen. So you can describe accurately without saying whether it was good or bad, because there might be some situations where you say to a patient, I'd like to look at your prescribing screen now, I need to check something, I'm just going to look at that. So it's appropriate to look somewhere else if you introduce it, Um, whereas you might, you know, not do that and it might seem quite rude if you suddenly stop looking at somebody so it's about describing first isn't it i think one of the other interesting things which i know some trainers have suggested to me is is to look at non-verbals in other situations so again maybe in films and so on but also maybe we all love people watching don't we so you know if you're in a coffee shop or if you're on a bus or you're just in a crowded place just watching what people do and how they interact and trying to work out What messages are those two people on the other side of the room giving to each other? Are they happy to talk to each other? Are they unhappy with each other? Are they close to each other? Have they met before? Or is this a business meeting or is this a meeting between friends? You can tell a lot of those things just by observing people around and about you. But as you've come back to frequently in these discussions, raising your own awareness of of it, becoming more aware of what you can notice and what you can see, and then you can start, of course, to think about the meaning of it once you once you've done that. okay, there's there's one other thing I'd like to talk about which we haven't really covered, and which, I think for most people would be considered an unusual aspect of nonverbal communication. And that's the idea that you mentioned earlier on about, chronemics and particularly this idea that people communicate non-verbally in their attitudes to time and punctuality and that, that there are sometimes different cultural social or personality differences in people's kind of approach to punctuality and i wondered if you could say something about this and how it works
1: absolutely i think as we mentioned earlier chronemics or the attitude to time used to vary between different cultures in the global construct we are having now where people travel a lot more communicate a lot more the concept of time is very important uh, but at the same time some of the differences are getting blurred um, if you're catching a train if you're catching a bus if you're catching a plane you realize that or are you are going to a a, a film showing um, the time has to be mentioned on when it starts, whereas social events like weddings and funerals can be quite traumatic in a cross-cultural setting. I remember uh, when Louise came to visit India to attend one of the weddings, she she was mortified at the kind of fuzzy concept of time as when the wedding actually takes place. Apart from the actual ceremony, the whole concept of when a reception or a function takes place, can be moved. So there's something about relationships and certain people arriving is far more important than starting on time in some cultures. In other cultures, uh, the time becomes a lot more a priority because people fit this around their life. It's not just they have an open afternoon to do everything. Um, I, I say it with a lot of caution because while these used to be stereotypically different previously i've noticed in my travels now things are changing a lot and mm. it's a very movable feast but still i think a lot of western cultures and and somebody once told me that if you are a colonial culture your timetable becomes vitally important to your safety and running 50 countries across the world <laughs> uh, <laughs> whereas if you are non, if you didn't have that timetabling, uh, timetabling or, or and, and i think the, the whole aspect of communication whether it's through mail uh, telegram um, Travel everything is changing at yeah. a pace where these differences are getting more blurred But I think from a teaching and consultation skills point of view we are we do have the construct of appointment times and appointment lengths um, and I think sometimes people may forget that uh, just like how the doctors have important parts of the the patients do too. Mm. So it's not sometimes there may be a bias where the doctors feel pushed out if the patient doesn't arrive on time. But when they run late, uh, it has okay. to be they think it's yeah. okay. But the patient may have three different appointments that day and they may not be able to go. So I think it's really important to not to assume. That's when, when a trainee or a learner or an employee start at the practice, that they accept the chronemic culture of the practice. Yeah. But to actually cover that in induction, to say the patient appointment starts at nine, but usually takes half an hour to settle in, get a cup of coffee, log in. So don't just give this precise time something starts, but the time it takes for it to settle down and invite. The learner to describe how punctual they feel they can fit into the timetable because they may have children to take care of and things to do. Mm-hmm. So it's a negotiation. But if you set it at the beginning, then you don't have these issues of people yeah. coming late and running.
0: I I like to just sort of pick apart this idea about different attitudes to time a bit more, because I know you've proposed a classification, I think other people use it as well, where there are kind of monophasic cultures and polyphasic cultures. And I think in the West, and I I think it's partly colonial and partly capitalism, where everyone had to get to the factories on time and do their work on time, and the workers had to be disciplined and well-organised to make lots of cotton or whatever it was. There's definitely a kind of idea that there's a linear thing and things are going to happen at certain very specific times and then i think in different kinds and i don't think this is just cultural i think it between individual humans as well there's a more polyphasic approach where you might think in the next week i've got these various things to do and they might happen simultaneously or sequentially or i might put one thing down and then do another thing according to how the world goes on. And I've definitely seen this within um, the UK, for example. Uh, I went to a funeral, which started on time even though the the vicar wasn't there because the vicar was stuck in traffic. And the, the funeral was started by the people in the audience because starting on time was considered to be so important. Well, I've been to other funerals where a funeral would only start when all the right people were there and you'd wait till everybody had arrived. A bit like uh, aspects of Indian weddings where certain things, it's not... What time it is, but whether certain things have happened or whether certain people have arrived or whether certain processes are finished off or whatever. And I think that that can apply to to a lot of different individuals. You know, we all know people in every culture who are very punctual and other people who aren't very punctual. But I think understanding people's different attitudes can help us to be more sensitive to that Mm -hmm. To be more aware of the different flexibilities, but also to be more explicit about our expectations, because there are expectations that a nine o'clock appointment, the door will open at nine o'clock for the patient to come in. And that's a reasonable expectation, actually, isn't it? It's it's a reasonable thing. But people aren't always, particularly I think if you've worked in hospital where things often slip quite a lot, the precision of primary care can seem a little bit unnerving sometimes so i think it's interesting that you talk about being very explicit about this and and i wondered what you also were talking about how making judgments about other people's punctuality can can get in the way of here and you talk about something called the ladder of inference so what what's that all about i think the
1: the ladder of inference comes from a construct how it's a shortcut to making judgments on attitudes so we observe a certain behavior so for example somebody's coming late Um, if we keep that as a behavior and both preempt that behavior as we said earlier and talk about what behavior is expected what is the appropriate for the situation then that becomes a different approach but often what happens is People don't describe what behaviors are expected, things like punctuality, how we dress, how we arrive at work may not be covered in the induction. But then when somebody is slightly out of the norm and may be arriving late, then an instant judgment is formed about their punctuality. It can be a negative stereotype that they are not bothered or they are disengaged or they are not organized. Uh, whereas they may be incredibly organized but may be juggling seven different things so a ladder of inference says that not only do we jump to conclusion we also then hold our conclusion and look for evidence to confirm it Mm -hmm. so this person who's come late on a monday can be assumed to be disorganized or non-punctual and then the whole Team may be just looking out for them to come late again to confirm their conclusion mm-hmm. missing the fact that they arrived an hour early on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday mm-hmm. and stayed an hour late mm-hmm. can be completely bypassed. Mm-hmm. And then we just collect information to confirm our judgment. Mm-hmm. This is human nature. Mm-hmm. It's talked about in a lot of detail in a book called thinking fast and slow mm-hmm. by uh, Daniel Kahneman who's a Nobel Prize winning statistician. What I normally advise when a trainer escalates these kind of concerns to me is to do a reverse sampling where if you think somebody is disorganized, look for examples of organization. If you think somebody is aggressive, look for examples of them being non-aggressive. If, they are, if you think they are arriving late, invite the team to collect evidence for the next two weeks of them arriving early And often people are very surprised how they've been blind to the contrary behavior, but then if they can't find any, then it does confirm and needs to be fed back to the individual that they are arriving persistently late Mm -hmm. or they are persistently demonstrating some behavior. So I always believe that when you observe a behavior, how much ever inviting it is to jump to what attitude it conveys, it's e- useful to hold on to the behavior, collect evidence to the contrary if there is available, and invite the person to feedback on the behavior because it's a fact. They don't get defensive if you're feeding back a fact. Mm-hmm. They will get defensive if you feed back an attitude. So, mm-hmm. for example, if you say you came at 9.30 on Monday, is everything okay? will be met met with a much more open conversation than... I can see that your, your lack in punctuality yes. can be met with a very defensive or even a surprise shock response. Yeah. So yeah. the ladder of inference asks us to slow things down, not to jump from step two to step ten, mm. um, rather look at the behaviors, don't draw instant judgments, however inviting it is to shortcut it, but at the same time, it can be a useful observ- observed pattern where your judgment may well be right but we collect evidence to confirm that. I
0: I think this relates actually quite a lot to clinical work doesn't it where you know you can let's say see somebody with a sore throat and you can jump up 10 rungs to the ladder and say well a sore throat's not a very serious thing and then you almost kind of you're just looking for evidence that they're fine whereas you might need to say okay they've got a sore throat let's actually look at other information let's try and avoid these various kinds of bias, which apply clinically, and they apply in our interpersonal dealings with people, don't they? Because I think it's true with patients. Sometimes, you know, patients late for a consultation, and often people get very kind of, well, I can't see them if they're late. Whereas I know that I'm often running late, but the patient doesn't say, I'm not seeing Dr. Danchak if she's late. They just say, well, maybe she's a bit busy or overwhelmed today or something um and you know just because somebody's late once you do tend to remember things that stick above the norm and actually as you say you've got to look much wider and get a wider set of
1: information to work on it'll be useful to go right back to what we said about the monophasic and polyphasic cultures we're not saying one is right and one is wrong they both have pros and cons if you have a monophasic culture heavy on punctuality but maybe less on flexibility and willing to work a little bit later on i've seen many workers in india they may not start on time but they will s- stay back and finish the job even if their job finishes at five whereas in other cultures where they are punctual they work to rule and if yeah, they work not they unfinished they will come yeah. back tomorrow yeah. Yeah. so each has its benefits and it can have but it's right. it needs to be contextualized to the yeah. scenario yeah. Uh, and I think globally things are changing, and there are no longer stereotypes, mm-hmm. but it's become very contextual to the scenario we are working mm-hmm. on. And you're absolutely right. Patients, in, in the context of patient communication, and even in the concept of diagnosis, the ladder of inference is a huge issue. Mm-hmm. I call it um, cyberchondria, where people with a headache. Mm-hmm. Look at Google it and then go for the top rung of yeah. the ladder saying have yeah. I got a tumor yeah. rather than okay. think about all the other rooms And mm-hmm. this is where a doctor's skill in exploring headache is a symptom mm-hmm. Cancer or tumor is a diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Let's work. What other conditions can cause this symptom. Yeah. So stay with the symptom yeah. And I so, we sometimes have to push back because Patients may use a diagnosis to convey a symptom. Yeah. So instead of saying yeah. headache, they will say I think I've got migraine, yeah. I mean to say, you have a headache, yeah. let's describe yeah. the headache. Yeah. So it, it's it's a lot about, uh, I, I'm just going to
0: reinforce the phrase that you mentioned there, which is to to, to stick with the behaviour and to stick with the, the observe, uh, what you can observe and see, and that's always the best way. To kind of move forwards, really. So, I think nonverbal communication has turned out to be a lot more than just posture and where we put our chairs. And I'd like to say thank you to Mo for opening our eyes to the wide variety of different ways that we can communicate nonverbally. There's going to be more detail about all this in the written materials, from which will be on the TALK website. And also there'll be a short video to follow this, which will show some of the gestural communications that we can achieve within our consultation. So thanks very much, Mo, and uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast.
1: Thank you, Al. <music> This podcast
0: was brought to you by NHS professional educators, making training available to all.